Justin, I like the beard. Uh, you look just like D.L. Moody, so if you, uh, if you Google an old picture of D.L. Moody, uh, you look just like him. But uh, it'll probably uh, cause the little girls not to be so scared if you shave it off. I think that even though God reveals himself as a God of grace to us, even as mature believers, we still have difficulty understanding, appreciating, and applying God's grace in our lives. We often get it wrong. And so this morning and this evening, I'd like us to be in the book of Galatians in which the apostle seeks to help us understand, appreciate, and apply God's grace to our lives. Would you look with me, please, at Paul's letter to the Galatians? Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Uh, there's, there's no easy way to say it. He's saying basically someone who changes the gospel deserves to go to hell. Uh, we don't normally use those terms except from the pulpit unless we are... Uh, the kind of people uh, who swear, but that's exactly what he's saying. Most of us have uh, read Paul at uh, other portions of Scripture uh, where he's not so mad, and, and we may be shocked at the opening section of the Galatians, and we say, why such a hot letter? I once uh, wrote a letter to my future father-in-law that later came to be known as the hot letter. I reread it and realized, yes, <laughs> that letter was wrong, wrong, wrong. I regret ever having sent it. Paul does not regret sending this letter to the Galatians because they were being duped by what he describes as false teachers. So I need to back up and help us understand how we got into this mess. On the first missionary journey, as Paul was taking the gospel out to the Gentile nations to the west, 
as he came back, he got this idea that he wanted to go ashore in the Galatian region. Uh, to go ashore there meant a uh, mountainous journey inland to where the major cities were. And at that point, uh, John Mark, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, who was with Paul, uh, got cold feet and said, no more. Uh, this has already been rough enough. I can't handle Galatia. And he went home and abandoned the team. And you may remember that caused quite the rift between uh, Paul and Barnabas as to whether John Mark was a flake or whether he was worth uh, continually uh, pouring uh, their advice and ministry into. Well, as Paul went ashore, he became uh, very ill, uh, near death. The, the Galatian cities had very warm and welcoming people uh, that nursed him back to health. He preached the gospel to them, a number were saved, and he planted assemblies uh, all over that region. However, there was, back in the homeland, uh, back in Jerusalem, back in Antioch, debates among Jews who had converted to Christianity, uh, who came to understand that Jesus really was their Messiah, what do we do about our Jewish principles when it comes to evangelizing Gentiles? For centuries, we have been the ones with the truth. And for centuries, we've asked non-Jews, or Gentiles, if they want to know the truth and relate to the one true God, to join us through our faith and become a proselyte to our understanding of the truth and of God. That meant you would adopt our practices, so you would adopt the Mosaic Law. And these Jewish Christians and Jews who thought that they were becoming Christians began to wonder, what about this evangelism that's taking place on the frontier? What about all these Gentiles that are coming to Christ? Do they need to come the old way? Do they need to adopt the laws of Moses? Do we need to require circumcision? Should they be obeying the dietary restrictions of the laws of Moses? And there formed parties within the early church as to how to answer this question. There were the party of the circumcision that Paul describes, sometimes called Judaizers. And many of those believe that the only way to have relationship with God, even now that Christ came, was to also be part of the Mosaic Law and its covenant, and that would require that Gentiles convert, in a sense, to Judaism on their way into Christianity. And that was a huge question. Now, this is Paul's first letter uh, to a church that we have in our Bibles. Uh, this comes before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, in which this was decided once for all for the church. And so he is fighting this battle out on the frontier in which there is a group of people who are following him around, going to the churches that he planted, and teaching his converts. Don't listen to the apostle Paul. He's not even really an apostle. 
This guy is teaching you easy believism. This guy is just saying, just believe and you can be saved. That's not true. And they were saying such things as, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to obey the laws of Moses. You need to obey the dietary restrictions of the laws of Moses. In many ways, you need to become Jews like us in order to become Christians. What is frustrating Paul is that these Galatian churches, who'd begun correctly by hearing the gospel of grace, had now become confused. And a number of them were beginning to waver as to what Paul had taught them because these, he calls them Judaizers, these Judaizers had come from, they say, James in Jerusalem, which was not true because James actually agreed with Paul's gospel. They came and lied to these Galatian churches. And Paul says, how can you possibly believe them? If you began your relationship with God on the basis of grace, why would you now think that you would continue your relationship with him in sanctification by adding to your relationship with God all kinds of rules and hoops that you must jump through? Look, for example, in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Meaning when I led you to Christ and the Spirit came into your lives. When you received the Spirit, did you receive Him by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obvious. He had not taught them to become proselytes to Judaism. He taught them to come directly to Christ by grace. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's thinking of the difference between justification when we first come to faith in Christ and have our sins forgiven. And he's now speaking of sanctification, the process by which Christ and the Holy Spirit work to change our character so that we become more like Christ. He says, if you had been saved by grace, why are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Why are you now trying to work sanctification by the works of the law? That makes no sense at all. And whereas he said in chapter 1, anyone preaching to you a gospel other than that which was preached to you originally deserves to be accursed, he's saying here in chapter 3, did someone cast a spell on you? Are you bewitched? Are you foolish? How could you so easily be duped? Well, I can tell you the answer very easily. We're humans. We have a hard time understanding grace. We have a hard time understanding why God would be so gracious to us. 
We have a hard time applying it in our lives. We have a hard time exercising grace as we relate to other people. We have a hard time appreciating God's grace. So if someone comes to us and says, you need to add to the grace that God has given to you, your performance, we easily fall into belief, yes, that must be true. I heard of a nun in the Catholic Church who understood that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay for her sins and that she didn't deserve the salvation that he offered, but that she would receive that salvation by grace. And she said the most amazing thing. He has done his 98%. I must do my 2%. She has just put into words what many people in America actually think. They say, yes, God saved me on the basis of God's work, or Christ's work on the cross. And yes, he has done that graciously. And yes, I receive that by faith. But somehow we think that we must contribute to it in some way in order for it to truly be ours and that we deserve it. Now, when Paul writes the, the, the letter to the Galatians, he is absolutely crystal clear that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But as he applies it to the Galatians over six chapters, he helps us realize that everything I receive from God, from justification in which I'm declared righteous, not guilty in his courtroom, in which I am now innocent before God because Christ's righteousness has been applied to my account, to sanctification, the process by which I'm becoming more and more Christ-like as I'm submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and allowing Christ to control me, all the way up to glorification in which he takes me home to be with him and all taint of sin is removed and I become holy and complete with a completely new resurrection body, my old body transformed from justification to sanctification to glorification Everything I receive from him is by grace. And here's the part that we have to understand and why Paul's so mad as he writes this letter. Nothing I do obligates him to do anything in return. I serve him out of love and he rewards me out of grace. God is no man's debtor. Now, th this is so hard for us to comprehend. I ask you, what's the difference between the work that a maid does and the work that a mom and a wife does? And if you think about it for a moment, you say like, well, the maid cleans the house. And you could say, well, the mom cleans the house. You could say, well, the maid makes the beds. Well, the mom makes the beds. Well, the maid washes the clothes. Well, the mom washes the clothes. You could say, well, she makes dinner 
for the family. You could hire that done as well. You'd say, what's the wild difference between a maid and a mom and a wife? The whole motivation, the whole commitment, the whole relationship, there's a world of difference between the two. And yet, you'll watch married couples, husbands and wives relate to each other, and they keep score. And they tell each other what the score is. We were at a, a meeting of the corporation for the camp last night, and it was during the Dodger game. And there was a person keeping score all the way through the meeting, and he kept calling out the score every few minutes because some of us are Dodgers fans and would actually like to know what's happening with the Dodgers. Inside of marriages, there are husbands and wives that keep score, and they say, did you ever see the fiddler on the roof when he asks his wife, do you love me? Because he's so confused about his daughters and the way they're falling in love with people that he never would have picked for them. Her answer is, how long have I served you? What have I been doing to you? What have I been doing for you? Why, of course I love you. And she starts rattling off all the things she does for him. We do the same thing with God. And so whereas we would read Galatians, we'd say, oh, that's not me. I'm not a Judaizer. I don't think I'm saved by works. I'm not a person who distorts the gospel. Uh, we have to make sure, in my opinion, that when we relate to God, we don't slip towards that nun who says he's done his 98%, now I need to do my 2%. No, we need to understand nothing that God has ever done for me have I deserved. Nor do when I serve him, obligate him, to do anything for me in return. Everything he has done for me is on the basis of grace. I don't deserve any of it. And that is completely transforming. And it turns us from being maids into being wives and mothers because we realize I serve him out of love, and he rewards me by his grace, and I'm not keeping score. Carol and I met at Biola College. I now work for Biola University. My two youngest sons are studying at Biola. My favorite prof, Dr. Curtis Mitchell, taught many of the New Testament and Old Testament survey courses through the Bible. I loved his teaching. I took as many of his courses as I possibly could, but I hated his exams. They were amazingly picky regarding the things that he would ask. I remember the very first exam I took from him in the first five weeks that I was there as a freshman. It was in Genesis, and he had made the point that the patriarchs had lived long lives, and he started rattling off, Methuselah lived this long, and Lamech lived this long, and he, he named off some of the patriarchs and how long they lived. While I was studying for that first five-week exam, a sophomore told me, you better memorize how long those patriarchs lived, and I said, that's ridiculous. 
And I thought he was playing with me. I had no idea. I go in there, just in case I memorized maybe the top three. I go in there, and he had those on the test. I went and complained to him afterwards. And I said, why are you asking such minutia? And his answer was interesting. He said, to separate the A's from the B's. Well, I got a C on his test. That's why I was so mad. <clears throat> but I adjusted because I loved him, and I loved taking his courses, and I learned a lot from him. Eventually, my junior year, I actually went to him and said, do you need a TA, a teacher's assistant? Can I be any help to you? Can, can I do something that would allow me to help you with what you do? And he let me. I started grading things for him. I started... Uh, doing odd jobs for him, and eventually he let me start teaching his class when he traveled. He heard such good reports that he then came and sat in class and watched me teach, and he's the one that gave me my start in teaching for Biola and Fertility. A relationship built on his high standards, a relationship built on the necessity to change my whole understanding of the economy of how he was working with me. Now imagine if we became frustrated with God and we would say to him such things as, I have this real big favor to ask you this week. You may have wondered why I've been so good this week. I have been so good this week because I have this huge favor to ask of you. Now, on the basis of how well I've behaved, please give me this favor. Now, you may think that's ridiculous, but you'd be surprised how many of us, if pushed, would have to admit there are times in our lives in which we reason with God in prayer on the basis that we deserve the request that we're asking of him. He is not our butler. He's not at our command. We don't manipulate God in any way. He is God. We are not. Our salvation is based on grace. Our sanctification is based on grace. And eventually, even our glorification will be based on grace. In the rest of chapter 1, Paul argues that I didn't get my apostleship handed down to me by the pillars in Jerusalem, the leaders of the mother church. I received my apostleship from Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, he says, I didn't get my gospel from the pillars in Jerusalem. I got the gospel that I've been preaching to these Gentiles out there on the frontier from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, I even went back a few years later and met with leaders in Jerusalem. We discussed what the gospel message is, and we agree. We are preaching the same gospel. Listen to him in chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went again up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. You know Titus. Uh, there is a book that Paul wrote to Titus. He's one of the young men that he was discipling to be a leader in the future. 
And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. In other words, that my entire ministry would be torn apart by people who said I had been preaching it wrong. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he brought with him Exhibit A, a Gentile Christian who is now a young leader, part of Paul's team. And he says, do we need to make Titus be circumcised, obey the laws of Moses, obey the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses? Are we going to make him as a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? And the leaders in the Jerusalem church says no. But listen to his problem, verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren. So these Judaizers, he says, are not just confused Christians who are wondering about the blend of Judaism and Christianity. He says, no, they claim to be brothers. They're not. They're false brothers. It was because of the false brethren who'd sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, liberty being in this context a synonym for grace, in order to bring us into bondage. And you might say, well, why would they want to bring us into bondage? He explains that at the end of the letter when he says, their whole purpose is to control you. If they can write the rules, they control you. That's their motivation. He says, but we didn't yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Now, a problem arose with the Apostle Peter himself. Yes, the Peter that walked with Jesus. And Paul is faced with a conundrum as to what does he do with Peter's treatment of the Gentiles. Drop down to verse 11, Galatians 2, 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is the Aramaic, Aramaic name for Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Talk about a hot letter. He's telling the story of how one apostle publicly chastises another apostle. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that's what I was describing, these Judaizers who came claiming to be from James of Jerusalem, which was not true because James had the same view that Paul had. So prior to the coming of these certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Because if you remember the book of Acts, you remember the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven and take and eat, and he goes, no, I can't. And he goes, oh, yes, you can. He says, the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and you're no longer under those dietary restrictions. So yes, you can now eat these animals. And Peter, believing God in the vision, fellowshiped with Gentiles and ate what the Gentiles served because he understood he was in a new dispensation. Verse 12, prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. That's in a sense a political party among the Jews that say, in order to become a Christian, you must also be circumcised. 
And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now you might say, what does it matter with whom we eat and how we eat? Everything. The church is not going to be made up just of Jews who've grown up in Judaism and have tried to keep the law since they were children. No, the church is going to be made up of a wide range of people of different races, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures from different lands, different languages. The church is going to be made up of all people. And we can't have a division in which we demand more than God demands. We can't require of them more than God requires of them. And Peter, who theologically knew the truth, delivered by God himself, had been eating with the Gentiles and enjoying it. But when the Judaizers came, he got cold feet and started acting like he was one of the Judaizers and refused to have fellowship with the Gentiles any longer and would no longer eat with them or eat their food. He was so influential that many followed his example, and even Barnabas followed his example. Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, contextually meaning this gospel of grace, that what we receive from God is by grace, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, absolutely startling, that one apostle would chastise another apostle in front of everybody. But it was necessary because this was a public schism within the church. Now listen to his reasoning. If you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Basically, Peter, I smell ham on your breath, and you're a hypocrite. And lest we start saying to ourselves, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. We have to say to ourselves, if Peter could do it, so could we. If Peter could slip, so could we. And consequently, Somebody has to say to us, take two aspirin, read the book of Galatians, and call me in the morning. Because the book of Galatians is Romans in a nutshell. This is before the writing of Romans. This is the preservation of the pure grace-based gospel, the first letter, letter of the Apostle Paul. And whereas we think we understand grace, appreciate grace, and apply grace because we're human and we like so much to be liked and because we tend to gravitate towards keeping score. We are constantly in danger of slipping into a performance-based relationship with God in which we tell him what the score is, and we ask him to treat us appropriately.
Look, for example, in his summarization in verse 16, Galatians 2.16. He says it three times in order to get it out crystal clear. Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, declared righteous, not guilty, you don't come to faith in Christ by keeping the law. But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You might say, well, why the law then? Well, I'll answer that tonight at 6.30. We'll go deeper into the book of Galatians and we'll explain the purpose of the law. But in essence, what he's saying here is that if God required you to keep the law, you couldn't possibly be saved. And if we as husbands and wives never forgave each other, but held against each other the wrongs that we have done to each other, we would never have a marriage. Works the same way with fathers and sons or mothers and daughters. If we keep score, and if we hold grudges, and if we will not forgive, we're going to set ourselves up for a performance-based relationship in every sphere of our lives, and we will lose. James wrote in chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And that's why the law was never meant to save. All five of my kids are competitive swimmers. All of them are tremendous swimmers. When we go to the beach, they don't necessarily stay just inside the waves. They'll swim way out. If we go to La Jolla, they'll swim all the way over to La Jolla shores, from the cove to the shores. They love swimming long distances. But if God asked them to swim from our beaches here to Catalina Island, I might make it out a mile, you might make it out two miles, they might make it out five miles, but not one of us would possibly make it the 22 miles out to Catalina Island. We would all drown. And the law was never intended to cause us to think that we have earned favor with God and have earned our salvation. It was meant for other reasons, which I'll describe tonight. But we must come to understand that the way in which God works in our lives is by treating us out of love even when we do not deserve it. Look at verse 20, a verse that we should memorize and recite to ourselves weekly. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It almost sounds contradictory in which he says, 
he no longer lives. But then he says, oh yes, I really do live. But he says, I have been changed. The person I used to be has been transformed into a new person. The person I used to be was in God's image, but was fallen because of sin. And I was dominated by sin in my life. But Christ has saved me. Christ's crucifixion on the cross was the means by which God took my sin and put it on Christ. And Christ paid the penalty for my sin. He has offered salvation to me if I would entrust myself to him. I have. I have believed in Jesus Christ. You may remember it was kind of a rough transition for the Apostle Paul. He got knocked down from his horse. He got blinded. He got told by Jesus himself, why are you persecuting me? It was not an easy transition, but he has come to faith in Christ. He has believed in him. He's been transformed. And he says, now the life that I live, which I still live in my body, in the flesh, still with some of the same lure towards sin because of my flesh. But the life I now live, I live by faith. So faith wasn't used once in order to gain entrance into relationship with God. Faith is always the means by how we receive the grace that God offers us. So faith has allowed Paul, even through temptations, even through tremendous difficulties. You read through 2 Corinthians and you say, I'm glad I didn't lead the life that the apostle Paul lived. That was hard. But he says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And listen how he describes his relationship with him who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And this is the ethic that he's describing for the Galatians to adopt. He's saying, who you used to be should be transformed into the new you who is dominated by the person of Christ. Spiritually speaking, when you came to Christ, you should have been so closely identified with him and his crucifixion that you have died to who you were before and your old way of life and its old means of transactions, including a performance-based relationship in which we manipulate each other by the way in which we treat each other. That should be gone. I have been crucified with Christ. When he says it's no longer I who live, he doesn't mean that exactly because he's still alive. But he's saying it's the new I. It's not the old I, it's the new I. It is no longer I who live, but now it's different because Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, so I still am human, I still am the same person in one sense. But I'm completely different in the other sense. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We get this somewhat. 
If you were over to have me over to your home for dinner and we had a wonderful meal together, can you imagine if I got up from the meal and I said, that was a wonderful meal. Here's 20 bucks. And you go like, what? No, I had you over to my home out of grace, out of love for you. You can't pay me for that. No, I, I, you're insulting me. You're offending me trying to repay me for coming to my home for dinner. No, not at all. We understand that in one sense, but we need to apply that across every aspect of our lives. And whereas sometimes we're afraid to accept grace for someone else because we say like, well, I would have to repay him. Do you remember what Jesus said about who you invite over to your house? He says, don't invite people who can repay you. Invite people who could never repay you. Now, what kind of ethic is that? That's saying I'm not in a transactional relationship with people where we're keeping score. Because God has taught me not to keep score. God has taught me that he loves me even though I don't deserve to be loved. And in faith, I receive that love. And he treats me graciously even though I don't deserve it. What is my response? My response is to love him in return. He first loved me. And on the basis of him first loving me, I love him in return. He rewards me out of grace. And I just serve him out of love. Entire motivation for pleasing the Lord is I love him. Therefore, it doesn't matter if anybody sees us serve. I had to laugh. An assembly I was a part of that had a big lawn. Somebody had to mow the lawn. It would take a little bit of persuasion to find somebody to go mow the lawn. But there were people who would only mow the lawn when somebody was watching. Because in some way, they wanted somebody to know, hey, I'm mowing the lawn. The thing is, God knows everything about us. We are laid bare before him. There is nothing that is hidden from him. When he judges us at the judgment seat of Christ, he says he'll disclose the motives of our hearts. We must learn from the very beginning of our relationship with him is he has extended his love to us in a way in which I have not deserved. He's treating me graciously. He's asked me to love him in return, which I do willingly because I love him. But may I come to understand, I have not nor ever will deserved his love. And therefore, I only serve him out of love in return for the love that he's shown me. And if he rewards me, it's because of his grace. Oh, Father, we turn to you and we say, in many ways, this is beyond our understanding. This is, this is more than we can assimilate. And yet, it's at the center of all of our relationship with you. Oh, Father, imagine if we had been saved by works. You would have just said to us, well, go ahead and keep the law. And not one of us would have made it. 
Father, we thank you that you have offered us relationship with you on the basis of grace. We thank you for loving us, even while we were yet sinners. And we pray that you would give us, by the ministry of the Spirit within us, an understanding of how to apply grace in our lives every day. Grace in the way in which we relate to you, grace in the way in which we relate to our spouses, our children, grace in the way in which we relate to our friends. And Father, may we therefore reflect the image of your Son in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.